You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome back again, guys, for another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk. And, guys, we are right around the corner for Spring Gobbler. I'm starting to get itchy. I'm starting to see some pictures of turkeys and seeing birds in my travels. And, uh, like I said, I usually go through this short spell where turkeys consume my mind a little bit. I, I don't – I remember – when I was younger, when I was a kid, I'd go from like the day flintlock muzzleloader season closed. That was automatically the flip of the switch when I was thinking about turkeys, and it that was nonstop up until the start of turkey season. Until um, I either a killed one uh, or b was getting ticked off by turkeys because there's just something about that bird that just drives me nuts a bird that i believe is not that smart in the first place just has really good keen senses and just makes a jerk out of me most of the time when i hunt it but um as life has has kind of uh gone on for me and you know you get the the hustle and bustle of the world i don't think about turkeys quite like that anymore but i am gonna say that i'm starting to get the itch next weekend is youth season so you know hopefully you guys are able to get your kids out or somebody uh you know some youth hunter out there continue the path and tradition of hunting with our youth because that's the only way this is going to maintain and uh, and continue to keep that hunting heritage that we have here in Pennsylvania, which I do believe is important. So be part in that. And thinking along the lines of youth and keeping them involved in the outdoors, I think that's a great way to transition and talk about this week's episode. This week we are speaking with Eric Lance. Now Eric is a biologist from Ohio and is also the host of the Hunting Science Podcast. Now, Eric is a guy who is a wealth of knowledge, and he I, he talks about his journey of enjoying wildlife, having a desire to pursue wildlife in his career choices through school, and then talks about how he didn't come up in a hunting family and how he related hunting later in life and now has found passion in, in deer hunting, but really all things wildlife. And he talks about how, you know, how that mindset has changed over time, how he relates the two. And then, of course, we talk about a number of things in the, in the aspects of wildlife management. We talk about his career where he's doing some private consulting as well as teaching at the university. And uh, he's a, he's a professor there and talks about a, a 
bunch of cool work that he's doing. We talk about waterfowl and some of the projects that he's doing um, through school, through um, private clubs, and the, the the funding and the you know the nesting projects he's doing. Like he, this guy is just a wealth of knowledge. He's very very balanced like there's i don't see any sway in one species now he's just very well-rounded very knowledgeable well-spoken um if you guys haven't checked out the hunting science podcast i really encourage you guys to do that because it's full of episodes some some people you've probably seen throughout the hunting industry and then some people that maybe you never heard of but they're all really really well versed in specific topics that relate to hunting in the outdoors and it's very applicable to whatever uh you know things you're doing but we have that that science-based conversation and we also related a lot to as i brought mentioned earlier youth and what it was like uh making those decisions um, in you know, with your career and your interests in 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 wildlife, you know, I went down that road. I, I was a biology major, minored in, minored in environmental science. Went through you know the the thought that I just wanted to be you know something in in wildlife and whitetail management, and you know you know time and and the peers and you know mentors that I had throughout my life molded me and gave me direction. Um, into in where I am now, which which is a, a positive thing. I'm happy where I'm at, but I realized that what I thought I wanted and what I needed were two different things in my life. And I think we talk about that. So anybody listening to this, if you're young, if you are in high school, if you're in college, or if you're or if you're you're still just curious about career and you're, you're at a position in your life where you want to transition or, or something along those lines, I just think this is a great conversation in 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 thought process and how we handle that. And then uh, of course we're going to relate some hunting conversation and, and back and forth there. So really enjoyed having Eric on the podcast. Be sure to check him out. I did an episode with him the other week and I must say that Eric is a much better guest on my podcast than I was on his. I, I kind of went off on a couple of tangent rants, and we didn't really cover the topics that he wanted to. So I appreciated him having me on the show, and apologies to there for not going quite the way that he thought it would. But, uh, you know, he's a great guy, and hopefully we're going to continue to connect and, uh, you know, like I said, make sure you're checking out the things he's doing. So, uh, real quick, let's do some housekeeping before we get into this episode. The first thing I want to bring up, guys, if you haven't checked um, the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast out on any social media, I, I really would appreciate if you would check us out and follow us, subscribe, all that stuff, like, comment on the Instagram and Facebook feeds that we have. That's at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. And then, you know, wherever you listen into your podcasts, uh, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, leave us a review. Give us some stars. Give us comments, reviews. It goes a long way, a lot farther than you think. And I also want to give a shout out to the people and the sponsors that make this show happen. And yes, I did say sponsors. I am excited to announce that we are bringing on a new partner to the show, and that is Huntworth. Guys, this is a Pennsylvania-based hunting apparel and clothing company, and I'm really excited about their patterns. I'm going to run kind of back and forth. I'm in 
interested in the disruption and the tarnin patterns. The disruption is their digital pattern, their tarnin is their newest. Both of them fit really, really well in the landscape here in Pennsylvania to keeping you hidden, but both look really, really cool. The thing I like about Huntworth clothing is it's targeted for specific elements. You can get a couple articles of clothing that have the liners you need to target elements that will cut down on the bulk and still keep you comfortable for whatever conditions that we have here throughout the state and throughout your, your hunting adventures. So check out Huntworth. And last, I want to mention Radix. Guys, their trail cameras, in my opinion, are competitive no matter how you look at it. Their cell cameras, the M-Core cell camera or the Gen Series conventional cameras, both of them have top-end image quality, and it's hard to beat their prices. Um, the other thing I like, too, is the stick-and-pick camera mounts and accessories. The, uh, I, I find this all the time, like you can't f always find, like I'm always looking for a little block of wood or a, a stick or something to, to angle my camera, and that's fine, honestly that works and it's cheaper, but sometimes you run into a situation where maybe you've got like one tree that works in this specific fence line or something, and it's just a little bit easier if you've got a mount to screw it in and you can adjust it a lot quicker and more efficiently. It's a lot, a lot more solid. You don't have to worry about something knocking out at block. So, guys, check out Radix trail cameras and the accessories and all the other things that Radix has to offer. Let's get to this episode. Tonight with us on the show, I um, have a guest, Eric Lance, um, biologist from Ohio. Eric, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Hey, Mitch. Thanks for having me, and it's a pleasure. Absolutely. So you reached out. We were kind of uh, connecting back and forth through Instagram, and uh, you, we were talking about our, our podcasting uh, that we got going on. You started the, the Hunting Science Podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, the Hunt Science Podcast was, was something that I wanted to do over the past couple of years. And, you know, just like a lot of people that drive for a living, you know, as a biologist, as a consultant, you know, I'm driving all over the state of Ohio, you know, Indiana, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, not Pennsylvania as much, but, you know, West Virginia, Michigan, I, I do a lot of work all over. So, you know, listen to all these podcasts, I'm like, man, like, and also being an educator at the university uh, for another thing that I do. Um, I'm like, man, this, this is interesting. You know, I like to educate. I like to talk, you know, and, and doing a podcast just seems fun. You know, it's one of those things that to me, like all ideas that we have is just like, that just seems fun. So I wanted to do it and I, I took a little bit longer to really think about it, how I wanted to do it, what my goals were and, you know, finally did it. I wanted to, you know, focus and, and not focus, I guess is a better way to say on one particular species, because as a biologist, I don't focus on one species. So, you know, going through as an educator, you know, bringing guests on uh, that I know, industry experts that I know in different fields, you know, for different species and just come on and, and kind of be that middle ground between what's going on realistically on the ground that we're seeing in research and kind of conveying that to the hunters and the non-scientific community um, just in a, in a, you know, educative and, you know, entertaining, you know, format. That, that's really kind of as, as easy as I can break it down. You know, rather than focus on one thing, I want to be a diversity uh, show to show a lot of different species, talk a lot about different topics that, you know, will we'll reach a lot of a lot of hunters like us. Yeah, and I can appreciate that, too, because one of the biggest things that we need in any any given way, shape or form when it comes to making decisions on wildlife and and 
quality habitat. Like we, we need public support because, you know, folks like yourself that are doing the work in the trenches and out there and have that knowledge, if there's a lack of understanding from our general population that's, you know, you know, in favor or against certain things, education is the only thing that's going to sway the right decisions uh, when it comes to putting things into law, when it comes to, you know, regulations and hunting or, or whatever it is. So it's, it's really important. And I, I think we need more of that quality information so I can appreciate it. But, you know, you were, uh, we were talking earlier, you kind of, you kind of dabble in a bunch of different things. So, uh, uh, you know, I didn't do a very good job of introducing you other than the biologist with the hunt science <laughs> podcast. I, I'd really yeah. like our, listeners to just kind of get a better idea of who you are and what you do like give us a little bit of your background and and lead into what you're doing today okay yeah no problem so uh like you said i'm uh, you know an ohio resident i was born and raised in northeast ohio uh you know lifelong small town guy i want to say the population of my hometown probably you know float between four or five thousand people you know my whole life so so not very big any stretch of the imagination I grew up, um, you know, I was always fascinated with, with wildlife, outdoors, animals. You know, I, I don't know how old you are, Mitch. You know, I'm, I'm almost 40, uh, 39, actually. But I remember, you know, the old Marty Stauffer, you know, Wild America days. You know, my dad and I, I mean, my dad was into it as well. And we would watch those things before church. And, and I just love those documentaries. They would, um, Oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, they would, you know, I had subscription to zoo books. I would go to the library and I just, I was fascinated with those kind of things in school, you know, like most kids, I, I was an athlete. You know, my dad was a really good athlete. I was a three sport athlete, played college baseball. I was, I was an athlete. You know, that was my thing. I did not grow up in a hunting family. You know, I had an uncle that hunted, but the relationship wasn't anything there to where I would even remotely, you know, ask like, Hey, take me hunting, that type of thing. And honestly, it wasn't even really a thought in my head, you know, back then. Now, I did do a lot of fishing. Um, you know, my my grandparents lived in a campground for our church, and they were one of the, the only houses actually out there. So me and my cousins, who were like my brothers, I didn't have brothers. I had a sister who's nine years older than me. So growing up, I was pretty much, you know, when I was nine years old, she's out of the house. So, you know, I was pretty much an only child, um, if you want to look at it that way. But my cousins were like my brothers and we would go out there and catch, you know, go fishing, catch turtles, catch snakes, you know, all those different types of things. So always drawn to the outdoors, go to college, you know, biology, you know, was one of the things I wanted to do. And I really, again, still wasn't really into hunting. You know, I had a roommate of mine that also was a baseball player, a friend of mine, big, big, big hunter, you know, and his, you know, he was a conservation major and I was a biology major. It's kind of funny. I'm laughing a little bit because. Um, you know, the, the thing was, I wanted to go into veterinary medicine. I wanted to, you know, go work as a vet. And then, um, you know, he was like, man, I'm gonna go work for whitetails. I'm gonna go whitetails unlimited. I'm going to be a biologist, you know, blah, 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 blah. So we go pursue our, you know, paths. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I ended up transferring out of that school, went to a different school, finished to finish my undergrad closer to home. Cause I got hurt in baseball and just kind of was done with it. Mm. But it was funny because he, he did that. He got his degree in conservation. Um, I kind of lost track with him a little bit, but followed him on social media like we all do with people, you know, that we were friends with. And, uh, you know, he ended up working for the Smithsonian thing a little bit. But then I somehow now he's a financial advisor, mm. <laughs> you know. But anyway, and here I am, the wildlife biologist. But I go there because he was a big, big hunter, still is. You know, I, I see a lot of his posts. But he used to take me out to look at, you know, trail cameras, to look at tree stands. And we would just talk about it some more. It wasn't until I came back closer to home 
uh, to finish out my undergrad that I got a, kind of a new group of friends, you know, from the university and uh, outdoorsmen talking about hunting. I said, hey, I want to try this, man. You know, so I, I got into hunting, you know, that way. And as a biologist, you know, taking those classes, um, you know, not a biologist you know, yet, but taking those classes and learning about conservation and how hunting's role, you know, affects that. I just got hooked, you know, on it. And, and the first time I got into a stand and the first time I, you know, harvested a deer like that, I was, I was absolutely hooked, you know, from then on that paved my path, you know, really to today. So that's, that's in a nutshell, you know, I didn't have the traditional growing up, you know, in a hunting family like that, but the path got me here anyway. Yeah. But so. that path, like that's an important path because like when I think back on my path and anybody who's listening to this, that's younger and doing career stuff. Like I, when I was, you know, 16 17 18 years old going to make those decisions that were life-altering at that point what do you want to do when you want to go to college for um the only thing that i knew was i played sports at that time and my favorite thing in in the whole world was white-tailed deer and deer hunting and i wanted to do everything i possibly could so to me it's like well i just it just makes sense to to you know, going the biology route, you know, I was, I was following a lot of really cool people like, uh, you know, Dr. Grant Woods and growing deer was big at that time. And that's the same time that Midwest whitetail was going on. So you had a hunting based show that was really popular. You had uh, a very science and hunting, uh, show oriented. That was just, you know, had all of my attention at that time and I, I loved it and uh, just thought yeah you know being a biologist that's exactly what I want to do and you know I, I still hold near and dear to the sciences um, but I you know I think God steered me in the way that I was supposed to go and use my, my tools because um, I, I think having the passion as a deer hunter and then branching into you know the biology side of the things it, it wasn't wasn't going to work for me my mind doesn't work to that degree where somebody like yourself where um you you were just infatuated with wildlife and you understand the greater good of what we're trying to do with with population dynamics and carrying capacity and things like that and then you took into the hunting like you you just put the icing on top of the cake and i think that's really important like for anybody that's making those decisions in life like Make sure you understand, like, you have your priorities in line with that. And it's so hard for anybody that's young. It really is. I mean, I still can't believe that, like, I had to make those decisions when I was 17 years old. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know, teaching the university, I, I see the next generation that's coming out, you know, and it's the same thing. They come to me with, you know, aspirations. They're, they're graduating with conservation degrees because I get them in the later on, you know, courses. I teach junior, senior level courses. So conservation degrees, biology degrees, environmental science degrees, you know, th those are the kids I'm getting. And because I spent so long as a consultant, you know, not only with my own business, but prior to that working for engineering companies, working for environmental consulting companies, I've done so many different things that, you know, when, when the students come to me, I'm like, well, here's sounds like what this is what you want to do. You know, that type of thing. Here's some things I can steer you in the right direction. Hey, maybe, you know, you you like the environmental health and safety route. OK, awesome. And then people they'll come to me and say, oh, I want to be, I want to go work, you know, I'm going to get a conservation degree and go work in conservation. I'm like, you don't really know what that means yet. You know, mm -hmm. so let's let's talk about it. So a lot of my courses, you know, we break that down because just like you said, making those decisions when we're that young, it's like you you can make a wrong decision, you know, type of thing. So for me, before they graduate, hey, let's, you know, we look at job descriptions in the field. Okay, what does it actually mean when, you know, this this posting says you're going to be a, a wildlife biologist and then you read it and the description talks about nothing but you know army corps permitting and wetland studies and stream studies and it's like no 
they're putting this on here because you might be doing like a due diligence for threatened endangered species, looking up, you know, bats and, and things like that that are endangered in the habitat and coordinating those things. I'm like, so they're, they're just they're trying to bring people, you know, to the, the job posting and try to get as many candidates as they can. You know, they're not necessarily telling you, you know, anything false, but they're kind of misleading you a little bit. So we go down and we talk about those different types of job descriptions and look at those because I've you know been there. I've been on the hiring side, you know, type of thing. I don't do that kind of thing, but you know, I, I've seen those and, and and can read a job description, job description, excuse me, and uh, pretty much tell a student like this is more than likely what you're going to do, you know, type of thing. So this is what you want to look for. This is what you want to not look for. If in turn that's what you want to do. Tell me a little bit more about uh, teaching at the university. How'd you get into that? So, you know, honestly, it wasn't something that I was really looking to do. So a mentor of mine who was a very, very influential professor that I had when I was an undergrad retired, you know, basically he was a light, you know, he, he had been at the university for, I think, like 30 years. And, uh, you know, he, he was he was a phenomenal guy. So the university that I went to, I went to Kent State University. Kent's, Kent is, does not have a wildlife program. They have, you know, a biology degree. They're very strong. You know, and the hardcore biologies that I talk, you know, I kind of equate it to eukaryotic cellular biology, microbiology, cellular physiology, like reproductive biology, like all those different, you know, hardcore biologies that give people headaches, right? They're very strong in that. And they, they don't have a wildlife degree like Ohio State does, for instance, in Ohio. So for me, when I did it, I kind of tailored my degree as best I could with electives going through there. So the reason why I bring it up is because it it got me into Mr. Ross's classes. And, and Mr. Ross was a retired NRCS guy, the National Resource Conservation Service. And he was a, a forester, had a lot of in, uh, uh, experience with wildlife. And he taught wildlife resources. He taught forestry. He taught soils. He taught, you know, those classes. And I'm like, oh, my God, these classes are this is this is what I this is what I like. And at that time, I had made that decision. So fast forward a few years as he retires, they were looking for someone to fill a spot. He brings my name up because I had mentioned a little bit that I was interested in maybe teaching a class or two just to kind of see what it was like. So long story short, got a phone call. And, uh, you know, next thing I know, I've been teaching there for about eight, uh, six years, you know, or so some give or take some around that to look that up. But yeah, you know, I pretty, I pretty much took over his courses and, uh, you know, like I said, wildlife resources, conservation of natural resources, forestry, I teach soils class. Um, every once in a while, I'll teach a, you know, beginners, you know, biology class, you know, for non-majors or, or basically where they need me. I'm not a full-time professor. I'm not an associate faculty or any or, or tenured or anything like that. I'm a, I'm an adjunct, you know, professor, but I, I teach, I, I teach enough classes at the highest point before they would make me full-time. So they, they use me as much as they can, you know, type of thing, because, of my professional experience in the field and also, you know, with my experience as a biologist and, you know, all the certifications and all the crap you get, you know, with it. So I'm not very um, traditional as far as the path that most professors come into that uh, having, which they like because, you know, not everyone with a biology degree is going to go to medical school. You know, they're going to go work as a consultant or something like that. And they need to understand what that actually is. That's where I come in. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, would you consider yourself more of a generalist when it comes to a lot of sciences? Do you have anything that you like to specialize in more so than another? Like, how would you describe that? Because that's 
like when we talk about you know wildlife management, especially if you just narrow it into game species, that's still very very broad. Yeah, so I I I've had this conversation with other or people. You know, I the last time I remember having it was with Matt Ross over at the National Deer Association. So the way I looked at this, so to, to answer the first part of your question, I would say that when I was in school, I really really enjoyed anatomy and physiology. You know, that was my thing. Now at the time, I wanted to be you know really you know pursue veterinary medicine. I did that for a while, but. Um, you know, I really enjoyed anatomy and physiology. And I think a lot of it had to do uh, just it was just fascinating to me. And it's something that you could easily relate to what we do. And uh, so that was always interesting to me. Uh, the chemistry, not so much, but anatomy and physiology was was really where I, I, spe- I had major interest in. But when you start, you know, microbiology and, and things like that were also important. But, you know, fast forward to being a wildlife biologist, like what does it actually mean, like being a wildlife ecologist? And, and I broke this down with Matt because to me, as a wildlife biologist or ecologist, like it's to me, it's one of the harder ones to do. And sometimes people kind of raise their eye. And I said, well, let me let me break it down this way. Let's say we're talking about white-tailed deer. Okay, so if we're talking about white-tailed deer, just like you said, you brought up population dynamics. Okay, I have to understand how the population itself works. How does population, how does a population grow? How does a population uh, decline, right? What are the reasons? Well, we've got, you know, natural death. We've got, you know, other types of mortality that can cause, you know, fluctuations in the, in the rise and the lowering of the population, right? We know that. How do I model that population? What kind of, you know, curves and things like that do I see? So you have large scale as a wildlife biologist, you have to understand the dynamics of the species that you're managing from the large scale dynamics. But now you take that white tail and now what do I do with the individual, right? The individual, I have to understand how that organism is actually going to grow, right? Because everything, every species of wildlife needs three things. How do I find food? How do I not become food? And how do I make a copy of myself? So I have to understand that deer is looking for food. And if it's looking for food, I have to know what it eats, right? I have to know the plants that it's eating. I have to know what the crude protein levels are and how that influences the growth in the whitetail. I have to understand what all the other things do. I have to understand what the plant is. Where does it grow? How do I grow that plant? How do I get rid of plants that I don't want, right? So there's botany. There's all these different types of things. For me, Wildlife science encompasses a very, very large scale of your traditional biological subsets that all come together into one. Because not only now that, now you talk about breeding, right? How does, you know, the metatarsal gland get utilized, right? And, you know, in, in scraping activity, right? Type of thing. What, what is it? How is the, the bacteria, you know, working in, in a relationship to, to help with that? How does, you know, antlers grow, right? I mean, all these different types of things. When you start looking at the internal structures of the, of the species, you know, how is it metabolizing food? You know, how's it getting food? How is it reproducing? All these things at the individual level, as well as the, the large scale, you know, macro scale that we would call it. So there's a lot of information, not only at the large scale, the macro scale of the population, but also down to the individual as well, you know, that type of thing. So for me, that was one of the things that I kind of focused and honed in on when I was going through school because I under I kind of understood that. I'm like, listen, I've spent a lot of time training for vet school, you know, the hard score, the hardcore biologies, microbiology, biochemistry, those types of things. 
So now when I look at how a deer metabolizes something, I, I, I think about it a little bit differently rather than I, I, I don't want to say you put numbers out there or anything like that, but most, you know, don't think that way. You know, they just look at it from the large scale, looking at it down, down to the individual, you know, for sure. But the, the, the connection is, is usually not made at such an early stage in the development of your professional career on the academic side, if that makes any sense. So that, that's kind of what I would say my specialization was, was the anatomy and physiology. And then moving into professional, I would say, you know, habitat, you know, design, restoration, I really, really enjoy. I've done a lot of restoration work with wetlands and streams through my environmental permitting uh, professional career. And then you start doing timber stand improvements and working with other species of wildlife. I just really enjoy being outside and actually doing that stuff at the ground level. So for me, that's what I've gravitated towards more so as far as especially. Yeah, and that's a really important topic, and I, I think that transitions really well. Some of the thought, you know, some of the things I wanted to pick your brain on. So, like, you know, <clears throat> I've talked about this with other, you know, professional wildlife consultants, biologists of, of you know, other professionals in in the industry, and uh, there's a lot of different uh, schools of thought as far as um, repairing habitat. You know, you know, man has had such a great impact on the entire landscape and and there's different levels of restoration needed um just a general sense and i kind of bring me into some of the next question but just in a general sense in the the wetland restoration a lot of the waterfowl work that you do have has a lot of that habitat been degraded to the point that we are talking about um major major uh series of events and and a long-term plan to rejuvenate things back to um a stable state or or, you know i guess i say that not just in water but but a lot of the properties that you work on i mean uh get varying levels of of degradation across the landscape i mean what are your thoughts on some of the places that you've got to work on and and i i I say that just because i was i was curious from a wetlands just because my my travels have taken me to so many different situations that it's kind of overwhelming. So somebody with, with your mind, I'd kind of, kind of be interested in your thoughts. Yeah. So the whole wetland thing, the wetland degradation thing. Yes, absolutely. You know, wetlands are degrading at, at an astonishing rate across the country. There is a lot of programs out there that are, you know, ducks unlimited is doing a great job with, with that. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the army Corps permitting and things like that, that I do, uh, they, uh, there's a lot of programs out there. There's a lot of permit, you know, permitting requirements and things like that because of wetland protection. So if you're looking at, you know, my clients and things like that for utilities, you know, commercial developers, real estate developers, you know, wetlands are, are a protected resource. Okay. So to do any work, you know, within them or around them has to be basically permitted, right? You need to notify of what's going on. So that's the, the, on the, kind of the regulatory side, there's there's a lot of protective measures out there for that. If you damage wetlands, there's mitigation protocols and things like that that you have to do for restoration. Um, we could spend a, an absorbent amount of time on that. So I'll just kind of, kind of leave that there. Um, so yes, from there, there is. Um, you know, private land ownership, you know, agriculture, 
things like that have significantly reduced you know reduction habitat areas and, and in a whole like i said they're they're degrading they're they're being drastically reduced you know because of urban sprawl because of you know the needs of people you know clearing forested timberlands putting agricultural row crops in building cities i mean you name it you know and especially if you go back i don't know how far but you know, the seventies and the eighties and those times where people just built in a wetland without any regard, you know, now kind of talking a little bit about, you know, what actually is a wetland. A lot of people don't realize that a wetland does not have to have visible water. Okay. It does not have to have that. So when you talk and you brought up, brought up waterfowl. So, you know, we want to have water, right? Because if you're talking about, you know, the, the, two different types categories of ducks the the dabbling ducks or the puddle ducks and the diving ducks diving ducks are you know they want deeper water right so you're really talking about you know lakes you know deeper ponds things like that so we'll shift oh not not to say you won't see them on on those other areas but it's kind of shifting the focus more towards you know puddle ducks dabbling ducks they're called puddle ducks because you know they they like shallow areas of water like literally you know a, a semi-flooded you know, ag field. I'm sure in your line of work, you've seen a flooded, you know, field after a big rain, you've seen some ducks in there, you know, type of thing. So, you know, primarily eating vegetation, you know, small macroinvertebrates, you know, insects, things like nothing, things that you would find, you know, in those areas. So those shallow water areas like that are, are really, really beneficial for, for dabbling ducks. That's, that's what they want. You know, anything weightable, right? Obviously in the, in a cornfield or something like that, that's, that's shin high, that's obviously weightable, right? Our hen house programs that we're doing, you know, we're chest high water, you know, it's weightable, right? And that's where we see the highest, you know, kind of prevalence, you know, of those, of those ducks. So that's what we're trying to, you know, encourage, right? And we're trying to encourage, you know, landowners to manage those areas. So I'll use, you know, I know you do a lot with agriculture. So when I, when I talk with farmers, I say, Hey, you know, let's look at the, you know, and you could probably speak more to this than I than I can because you consult with those those more than I do. But I look at a, a decreased production area and like, well, if I go out here, you know, th- this is a wetland, right, that you're planting in. And there's a reason why it's not growing there. Because when you look at a wetland, a wetland, like I said, does not have to have standing water all the time. Now, now generally speaking, a wetland is an area that is saturated, that has, you know, a saturated table for 70% of the growing year. And what happens in there is you're going to have a fluctuation of water levels in the soil that's going to cause a change in the aerobic condition. So you're going to have anaerobic and aerobic conditions exposing the, the iron and other things like that in the soil that's going to cause a, a chemical change, just like the rusting on your car. Okay, that's called a, redo, a redox morphic uh, reaction that we're starting to see. But what we're getting at is the soil chemistry is changing. Okay, and when the soil chemistry changes, the plant life around that's inhabiting and utilizing that soil is also going to change. And it's going to shift into species that are more favorable in wet, saturated conditions. So when we go out and look at a wetland, it doesn't always, it may not have water right there. The water is, you know, more of a, a clay type of soil to where it's holding water at, at, the, at the, uh, the, the subsoil level, right? But it's not visible on the surface. But when I look at it, I see changes in vegetation. Okay, and we're talking about waterfowl. So we're looking at, you know, things like canary, reed canary grass around a wetland area that's, you know, good nesting habitat on the ground for, you know, mallards, for instance. 
right? So we're looking at a, at, a, at a hydrophytic change in the vegetation that we're seeing in the landscape, as well as a change in the soil, right? And we're seeing presence of hydrology or water. These are wetland systems. Now, you can have different categories of that, category one, category two, category three, category three being a higher quality wetland. So you start having these, and now you start getting degradation. Most of the wetlands that I come across that work and things like that, and probably most of the ones that you see are lower quality category mm -hmm. one wetland systems. So they're not very conducive for habitat. You're not going to find a whole lot of species, species utilization in those areas. And because of that, they are a lower score. Now, when you start looking at higher grade wetlands like category two, you know, high score twos and definitely threes, those are the areas that we're really targeting for species of waterfowl, especially ones that are in heavy migrations that we're seeing now, right? Here we are mid-March. You know, we're starting to see peak migration coming from the south, moving north, right? They utilize wetland areas along their flyways, okay, in order to take rest stops and feed and, and things like that. So if you're having this, a massive reduction in those sensitive areas and, and, and sensitive both from a, a resource side but also from a habitat side, well, that's why we're seeing a reduction in, in, in waterfowl populations because we're losing these sense of the, these these highly you know needed areas of habitat that's also not only limiting food resources but also nesting resources and the loss of nesting resources is is a, a very big problem you know with waterfowl populations so you know it's a long way to answer your question but but you know wetlands are in trouble um, you know, and that's why there's so many, much effort on restoring them. Like I said, the conservation organizations like Ducks Unlimited are doing a great job. There's been a lot of updates and things that you, anybody on LinkedIn, you can follow Ducks Unlimited and, and Delta Waterfowl and all these waterfowl conservation. They're doing great things as far as that goes. I know states as well, like Ohio has O2 Ohio program that does a lot of education and focus around wetland restoration and things like that and they're actually in the process of revamping that program um to to really hit wetlands a lot harder you know and things like that so there are a lot of things going on both at the state and uh nonprofit levels you know that are are trying to help offset that problem talk a little bit more about the specifics of rejuvenating that um you know and the work and the data that you would collect in any sense you know i, I think about Probably one of the things that gets the biggest press right now when we're talking about uh, decrease in populations, turkeys always come to my mind. And, you know, there's a host of, of things out oh there that God. people like yeah. to talk about of why that is. You know, we have a reduction in brood habitat. Um, the habitat has become more segmented across the landscape, which has allowed, you know, easier maneuverability for predators. We have a higher percentage of predators. Um, so you, you, you've got all those things. Agriculture definitely has an impact on on turkey species and such like that you know uh, the seasonal aspects are going to happen too we've got things like um, wet springs having an impact on that um, and, and not to mention like I'm, I'm dealing right now in the agricultural world with um, avian influenza having an impact on production yep. agricultural birds but it's not immune to affecting wild you know populations including turkeys so there's a lot of things out there that you know people point fingers to and uh, i i just want the work that you do and your experience like what are some of your your opinions you know along those topics but into the waterfowl side of things and, and like the data and work that you're doing to to try to 
you know, you know, steer, you know, steer us back on track, I guess, so to speak. So it's kind of a double-edged sword with that. If you're looking at an upland species like turkeys, okay, you can take areas of habitat and a lot uh, more easily influence that habitat to better provide support for upland game birds like wild turkey, pheasant, you know, quail, things like that. The problem that you run into with waterfowl is that if you have a, a wetland area, for instance, it's very hard to create another wetland. You can do it. We do it with restoration, but it takes a lot of finances because of excavations and permits and things like that. Okay. So let's kind of limit this because we we could go all day on that. So, you know, could you build a wetland on your property? Absolutely. You know, they build, you know, wetlands all the time, you know, but it also comes with a big price tag, Mm -hmm. you know, on the equipment side, the manpower side, that type of thing. So can it be done? Yes. Now, I'm just thinking about the properties that we're doing our, our our research study on, and I look at all the waters that we're using. Now, we're limited that we don't have an abundant water source. If I've got a two-acre pond, I've got a two-acre pond to deal with. Okay, if I'm looking at a 300-acre you know, timber stand, I've got 300 acres to deal with, and I can build turkey habitat a lot easier, and I could even build turkey habitat outside that 300 timber, that 300 acres of timber, utilizing ag fields and grasslands, mm. early successional areas, whatever. So I can grow my space, my real my real estate footprint as far as that goes. Waterfowl, it's a hard thing to do because, again, I can't just magically put more water there. Okay, so that's the first thing to realize. So if you have water on your property, the, the question is how do I make it better for ducks, right? So how do I influence this to be more conducive for waterfowl? Well, the first thing you need to do, just like anything, is establish your goal. You know, what is it you're actually managing for? You know, are you actually managing for turkeys in your timber stand or you want to do whitetail and turkeys? There's a difference, right? A lot a lot of the management that you do is similar, but there's a varying differences as well. With waterfowl, it's the same thing. Are you looking at, you know, an upland nesting species like like a mallard or are you looking at a cavity nesting species like a wood duck? Right. So understanding, hey, what what are my actual goals as far as the species that I'm managing for? Now, those two species I bring up because most people are, are readily familiar with seeing some of the efforts. Right. So I have water. And it all depends on how in depth you want to go into this, you know, because I can go into the water and say, OK, I'm going to pay someone to come in here and shock this. Right. I want to know what I have in this water as far as fish species at different, you know, species identification, growth stages, the list goes on. Okay. The biological data that we could get at the at the life that's in that that water resource. Okay. So that's the first thing you could do if if you want to do that. Most people aren't because again, it's expensive, right? It's expensive to hire someone to come out and electroshock and things like that. So the next question is, what can I do? to get the most bang for my buck to help uh, waterfowl populations on my property and even in the area. We talked earlier about a reduction in nesting success, right? That is a huge problem in waterfowl populations because of a lot of reasons. Man-made, the list goes on, okay? Predators are, are in there, but that's mainly due to loss of habitat type of thing. So I probably just... Stirred a lot of, a lot, ruffled a lot of, no pun intended, feathers. And we can talk about the predator thing for sure. But 
the the number one thing I tell people for waterfowl is if you can increase nesting habitat, that is the most bang for your buck that you can do on your property with the least amount of financial input. And I think that kind of ties in really well to the work you're doing right now. Talk a little bit about that nesting project that you were talking about with me offline. Yeah, so we have, so when I say we, um, uh, uh, fairly recently, you know, I've gotten more involved with the Delta Waterfowl, my local chapter. And Delta is a, a major wild, waterfowl conservation uh, nonprofit organization. They are the, the duck hunters organization. Um, they, are, they are staffed by, you know, the top, some of the top waterfowl researchers and biologists in, in, in the world. They're phenomenal. So, you know, they have been looking at this issue for a long time, right, and utilizing things like uh, mallard henhouse nesting structures and, and things like that. The programs are, have been going on, you know, for quite some time. So this isn't a new thing that we're doing. So joining the branch, um, our chairman is very, you know, uh, he's an older guy, old waterfowler, and he loves, you know, doing this henhouse nesting, you know, project. So when I joined, I said, okay, I said, you know, what, what, tell me more about this. I mean, I knew what they are, but yeah, tell me what all you got going on, you know, type of thing. And, and we were talking for a while and I said, that's awesome. It, you know, he's putting 30 of these things out in just this little given area. So a lot, he's doing a lot of work, you know, he's got some help, but he's doing, he's doing a lot of it, you know, with, with little, with little, you know, consistent help. Um, but like I said, others, others have, have, you know, definitely helped. So I said, what kind of data are you getting off of this? And he's like, eh, not a whole lot. I mean, he's taking notes. He's got very good notes on, you know, the clutch size and this has or this nest and you know this this and this. So he's got some data, but I was like, from the biological standpoint, not you're leaving a lot on the table. So I got a hold of you know a colleague of mine at the university, and we teamed up and we're doing a, a research project utilizing. These mallard henhouse nesting structures, which I'm just going to call nesting structures from mm-hmm. here on out, and uh, you know the purpose of that is to provide increased nesting opportunities for you know resident mallard populations in areas that generally have very poor nesting habitat available, right? And some of this is even on you know some of the the wildlife management areas, you know, because. The, the the manpower is not there. That resources are limited. Things don't get managed as often as they should, right? So we are out there putting these structures out in hopes to increase the duck population of mallards, you know, in these areas. And people are like Eric, there's mallards everywhere. Yeah, you're right. The species is not a threatened species. It's not endangered by any stretch of the imagination. But if you look since I believe 2019. I want to say 2019 or 16, I can't remember, that like Ducks Unlimited, you know, calculated a 23% reduction in the population. Wow. You know, since then, you know, and so that is almost, almost entire, a very large part of that is tied to nesting decrease success, right? Because you're not having the habitat that's available. So we are taking artificial nesting structures. Okay, we're we're you know utilizing these things, and we're putting you know canary grass and 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 uh, hay and things like that in there, and we're providing elevated nesting structures out on the water, above the water, to give them more ample and more successful areas to drastically reduce predatory impacts, right, and give them areas out of the elements, and and you know really hope 
that they're going to flourish in these areas with with their clutches and their broods. And we're seeing that. You know, ever since the hen house structures have been implemented, I want to say it's a pretty consistent increase in nesting success, anywhere from 60 to 80%. So if I can tell you that I can give you a practice that will consistently give you an increase in your populations on your property from 60 to 80%, that, that's, I mean, that's the name of the game, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, it's something I can, we can build a, we can build a nesting structure for about 75 bucks. Now, depending on how you build it and I mean, it could be 70 to a hundred bucks is kind of the number that we, we come out with. So, you know, it's not expensive, but you know, it's not chump change either. And you got 30 of these things, <laughs> you know, yeah, out right. there and stuff like that. But we look at the 30 that we've got out. We've got more. I, I don't have the data with me, but we've got multiple nests with clutches of 10 plus. You know, we've got incubating heads currently as we go. We have, um, you know, we're in the process of, of getting the thermal drones out to start looking for, you know, upland nesting areas that we can get tagged into the survey and get trail cameras on as well, like we have on the other nesting structures. But the idea is that we're taking a practice that is is seemingly, you know, very cost efficient. It's very easy to incorporate, and it's going to provide a massive amount of success in uh, increasing those nesting opportunities now doesn't guarantee you know full brood success but it's increasing the nesting percent uh uh uh, success from 60 to 80 percent now hatchability rates brood success that's a, a little bit different of a conversation that we're also looking at on future aspects of this project right now we're getting it set up and kind of getting the parameters you know dialed in yeah, you got to start somewhere, right? That's really, really cool with that hard stuff. I want to kind of go back in our conversation a little bit. So you, were, you were talking about earlier, you are talking about, um, you know, programs that you can enroll, like depending on what your goals are as a landowner and, and you know, property owner. There are tons of programs out there that you can do. You know, the example I'm going to give, you know, talk about you brought up production agriculture and taking less productive areas out and putting them into something. Um, one thing that I think gets really underutilized and people don't know about this is, uh, you know, everybody thinks of the CRP program for, for whole fields, but there's there's border programs for those less productive field borders, um, you know, put them into warm season or cool season things. And there's, there's, a, there's you know, that's just one example of so many opportunities to enhance the, the quality of your property. And cater to your goals. I, th- I think the biggest thing that people get hung up on, uh, it's, it's twofold. Number one is a lack of knowledge of what is out there and available to use a landowner through things like NRCS or stuff like that. And then also there's there's always a hiccup with certain people of, of allowing any kind of government program to have any oversight on your property and also yeah. like the, 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 the paperwork and, you know, the, the the hula hoops you got to go to to get funding and stuff like that they're great opportunities but i think because of those two things uh it, it holds people up like in your line of work that you get to to do with you know as you know as a consultant you know what, what's what's your take on that and and what what things are people missing out or might not know about well you mentioned crp crp is an absolute huge one because you know, we're talking about a little bit about waterfowl, but I mean, you look at upland game birds as in general, especially here in Ohio, you know, pheasants and things like that. And, you know, turkeys, I mean, the benefit, you know, of upland game bird, you know, habitat management with CRP is is staggering. Right. 
So the fact that people don't enroll or even attempt to enroll in that is just it's it's absolutely mind-boggling to me. And I'm I'm trying to look. There is I can't remember the name of the program, but there's even like wetland programs, wetland easement programs and things like that, that you can enroll into. And and I don't I don't do a whole lot with that stuff. When people want to get enrolled with that, I turn them and I, I send them over to the NRCS, the local office, because that's what those guys do. They yeah. they help you and 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 there's rule there there's you know requirements and things like that that I'm like okay you're gonna do this that's fine. The thing that gets most of my clients we, we just manage it you know and and you know you you deal with agriculture and stuff but for me like I'll, I'll talk to these farmers I'm like why are you know why are you just you say you want to manage and and have better habitat why don't you come off the drip line of your of your timber like 50 feet like nothing crazy 50 feet. You got this 90 degree hard edge between your timber stand and your monocrop ag field. Like it's not a good edge. I mean, it's like 70 or 80% creatures utilize the edge, mm-hmm. right? And a hard edge is not good. So if you come off a drip line 50 feet, it's like, let's be real. You know, what, what, how much of a reduction in your harvest are you actually having? I mean, look at the growth. I'm looking over at a corn stock. It's, you know, two and a half feet tall. Like you're not getting much of that. Okay. Now there a lot a, a lot of little bit adds up. Okay, so I don't want to discard that, but that's why there's CRP program because I can take those areas that are very low in production on the crop side, and we can incorporate successful management strategies in the form of grass plantings, you know, transitional buffer strips, things like the edge feathering, all different types of things that we can incorporate to increase that benefit of that particular area across your landscape you know that you are and guess what you get paid for it mm-hmm. <laughs> right they they pay you for the loss of, of the crop right so it's like it's a win-win you're getting paid to do a management practice that's going to benefit the species that you said you are interested in hunting and in in building you know more successful uh strategies for your property on like it, it's a win-win and, and like you said some people are like i don't want the government helping me it's like well Okay, now now you're just being silly. Yeah, agreed. You know the one one area that we run into in the eastern part of the country is we're heavy in animal ag, and I think the the disconnect between that versus the Midwest, and you look at our farming practices, um, we are in such a dire need of producing enough feed on a farm if it's a dairy farm a beef farm yeah. a pig farm whatever that will literally farm absolutely any nook and cranny that we can in yeah. order to get enough to get enough food now you and i know if we run the numbers and i've seen this on so many of the the, the yield data that i've been able to run in precision ag platforms and and do yield analysis which is really really cool and it's really informative when you can put hard numbers to show that it's not profitable but when you don't have that data and you and i are just going off of our you know our educated assumptions looking at a field no understanding productivity of soils and stuff like that even though they're gaining feed or, you know, or crop off of an area that's not as productive, it's probably not paying them that you're better off doing it. And it's one of the things that, you know, it's really important for folks like you and I to try to communicate in a, in a very non-intrusive way because it's going to benefit everybody in the long run. It's just very, very hard to, to break the norm, I guess is what I'd call it. Yeah, well, it, it's definitely a cultural thing. I mean, you talk about, you know, animal production. I mean, 
how many of your clients and things like that actually utilize like rangeland, you know, type of strategies and, and really go into, you know, rotational practices, grassland management practices, producing better forage opportunities for their livestock, you know, things like that. Most, I mean, the ones around me, I can't really think of any. Now, I'm not in plugged, you know, with a lot of these 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 growers, but you know, from what I see in these fields going across massive, you know, agricultural areas with utility companies that I work with, it's all, you know, fescue and just all this, you know, stuff. They're not managing it is what I'm getting at, you know, so they're not going in there and, and planting higher quality areas of native warm season grasses for, you know, hay production, right, or, or anything like that. So, you know, and again, you know, that that's one of those things that depending on the size, it, it can get expensive, you know, so, you know, there's, there's limitations for everybody, but there's also programs out there. That, again, the CRP programs and stuff like that, that can help offset some of those things, providing the benefit. And, and that's the double-edged sword that we play as consultants. And that's why in the beginning I say, okay, what are your goals? And they need to be realistic, right? You have to tell me that your primary goal is feeding your, 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 your cattle, right? Okay. That's fine because I need to take that into consideration when I'm making a management plan for your property. It's like, you know what? Maybe, okay, what's your next step I should kind of say is what is the limitations that you have? What's your budget, right? What are you looking to do? And it's something to where I said, hey, you know what? We might be better off just doing some timber stand improvements. You got, you got you know, 20 acres right here of timber, 30 acres of timber. Let, let's, let's, let's go small, right? Let's get some chainsaws out with some herbicides. And let's go out here and, and do some timber stand work and start there, right? Let's start there. Let's get that going, okay? And then let's start looking into maybe some CRP programs to look at transitional ed edges and buffer strips. Maybe now, you know what? We've got all this agricultural you know, livestock land. Let's bring someone also on that specializes in that. Let's talk about rotational grazing, right? And they and my, my clients have educated me on that you know, more so. I don't deal a whole lot with that. But we start talking about, okay, rotational grazings. We start looking at native warm season grasses and grassland management and that kind of thing. That's going to influence the resident populations of turkeys, other upland game birds, other species deer are going to utilize. I mean, it's going to be a you know, cascading you know, event you know, through the trophic system. So it's, it's going to be a good positive thing. But people have to be very realistic with their goals. Hey. I'm having a hard time feeding my 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 cattle. Like I got to grow everything I can in corn. Okay, that's fine. Or whatever a gra whatever grain that they're they're particularly focused on. Just understand what your goals actually are if you're talking to a consultant or someone like that. Because then you know a good consultant take that into consideration. Like okay, I hear you. Maybe you know we re reevaluate this area in another couple of years. But right now, here's what we can do within your limitations. Let's focus on that. Great point. Well, like I said, we've been we've been talking a lot of lot of different topics, a lot of different things, and the the, the fact of the matter is, uh, quality habitat results in quality opportunity for all the wildlife we love to hunt and fishing and and chase after. And I think it's important that no matter what you look like, I, I think that we're in a world now where everybody everybody can become, um, you know, a, a professional just by listening YouTube to some pages. podcasts and you watching YouTube and stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, I had some conversations with some people on my show here recently where, you know, 
there's nothing wrong with having a, a school of thought and, and utilizing certain practices that you've you've learned and acquired over the years, but there's a host of people across this entire industry that have different experiences and a, a lot of knowledge that you can pull together and use a little bit of everything. You know, there's no such person out there that's a, a one sh- one-stop shop when it comes to um, whitetails or waterfowl or turkeys. You know, there's a lot yeah. of people to work together with, and I, I think that's really important. And there's, there's a, so this this has been uh, a fantastic conversation. I'm kind of curious, you know, in the in the coming year, 2023, what are you most excited about uh, about running with here in uh, in your line of work and your podcast, whatever. You know, what what's got 2023, you know, just burning up for you, I guess. Yeah, well, definitely the podcast. You know, that that's that's a, a big you know, focus for me right now is, you know, getting good guests on just like anybody. I mean, we want good shows, right? Mm -hmm. We want to educate the people listening. I would say that I am anybody who, uh, if follows me or checks out my social media lately, I am running just because I'm, I'm pretty heavy with the waterfowl, you know, research that we've got going on right now. That's going to be, uh, something that I'm, I'm, I'm juggling between all my other work. But I would say that as far as what gets me excited is is the waterfowl research project that we've got going on right now. That that's that's you know it's kind of the new girlfriend <laughs> type of thing. I mean, I, I love working with waterfowl. I'm a big waterfowl hunter. Um, you know, I was on a property the other day. Uh, you know, a friend of our, our local chapter has a thousand acres and a bunch of water on his property. And and Wednesday, you know, we saw I want to say well north of a thousand ducks wow. you know, and i, I want to say about you know 10 different species now it's peak migration we're seeing species that aren't going to be here you know for much longer but you know it's it's i'm sitting there on the on the at on the side by side and i'm like listen i love deer hunting right i love everything about it i love big bucks and everything i was like dang man watching 1200 plus ducks flush off of water and just seeing all, I'm like, oh my lord! Like that, it just, if, or maybe you don't get it, but it's just like, holy crap! Like that is, it's amazing, you know, to look at. So for me, you know, like I said, kind of the new thing. Um, the research is very interesting to me. I get excited about it because I know the benefit that it's going to have on the populations. I know what my deliverable is going to be to the the people that manage the 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 state wildlife management areas that we're on here's what we're finding here's what you know we're doing to help and here's you know how this program is going to put more ducks in the area which is going to bring and open up possibly more hunting areas which is going to attract more waterfowl people buying more uh stamps and everything like that it's it's a it's a positive thing that hopefully maybe can fund another technician or two you know in in the next 10 years or something like that you know so for me it's waterfowl is one of those that does not, you know, there's a, there's a lot of research, you know, going on with waterfowl. Absolutely. But in the hunting space, I mean, how many, how many episodes have you done with waterfowl? Oh, very, uh, you can count them on one hand. Yeah. How many episodes on, on the sportsman's empire have waterfowl? How many episodes, you know, there's a lot of waterfowl podcasts out there, but when you put the bandwidth in the hunting space, waterfowl versus deer versus turkey it's not even close sure so you're you're people that i mean listen i'm a hunter you're a hunter right we love hunting deer i also love hunting turkeys i have german shorthair pointers i love hunting up with game birds i also love hunting ducks right so it's for me most hunters 
enjoy hunting other species. Why are you not managing for those species? Right. Why if if you have if you have 400 acres or you have 100 acres or 50 acres, why are you not doing everything feasible to increase your property's resources for whitetails and turkeys? Right. We talked about earlier, you know, my parents' property. Now I I can do some management on theirs, but I'm surrounded like it's it's I'm surrounded by 300 acres. Their part of the woods is like seven or eight acres. Fall turkey gets me excited. I see fall turkeys because they're not breeding, right? They're everywhere. They're roosting. They're utilizing the, the timber stands. They're, they're going after acorns and, and other food sources. Come springtime, I don't get too excited. I know it ruffles a lot of people, right? I love turkey hunting. I don't have a whole lot of good spring turkey hunting areas because most of my areas are monocrop agriculture up to the drip line, hard 90-degree edge, closed canopy, immature growth timber stands, high stem densities, and I can see 300 yards through it. No turkey hen in their right mind is going to build a nest in that area, right, type of thing. So they're just not there. You know, I know people can't see me, but I'm waving my hands. Like, <laughs> I don't, You know, I just like, I don't know what to tell you. You know, people are like, I don't see turkeys. The state's not doing their job. No, the state isn't not doing their job. Look at this. Look at what you have. Like, you, you don't, what I'm going is you have nothing here. You got some roost trees. Yeah, you're going to see turkeys once in a while. Well, I see them all in the fall. Because if you don't understand the ecology of the species, you're going to you're going to have a skewed mindset. And that's kind of, you know, you talking about people that have the the culture, right? The mindset. States are doing their job for deer. Okay, well, I can make the same argument for deer. Closed canopy timber stand, poor understory development, high stem density, immature growth, huge amounts of agriculture. Well, there's food. Yeah, there's food. But you have no cover. So, I mean, what are you going to do? You going to go sleep out in your backyard? Uh, it, <laughs> like, exactly. It's it's you know, amazing it's, how that tunnel yeah. vision can 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 yeah. just encapsulate encapsulate. What did you. I? What did I say? All three species, any species of wildlife, including humans, we're yeah. just way more adapted, right? How do I find food? How do I not become food? And how do I make a copy of myself? How do I find food? Well, if I find food, I need vegetation. If we're talking about the spring green up and we're talking about the time in which, you know, does are dropping fawns and lactating for those fawns, the lactation is exponentially more demanding on a, on a doe than the last trimester of, of pregnancy. So if I don't have high quality vegetation with adequate amounts of nutrition that they need to, to not only lactate, but grow themselves and bring their fawns up to, uh, you know, hit the milestones that they need for the upcoming harshness of the winter months here in the Midwest, right? There's a problem, okay? So you need to have, you're not going to have that type of vegetation in a closed canopy timber stand, period, end of story. People are like, oh, well, they eat, you know, they're eating the buds off maples. Yeah, okay. During during the fall and the winter, and during the winter when there's nothing else to eat, like that's not carrying them 12 months out of the year. Right. You can't say you have habitat because you got a little bit of food. Right. It, it doesn't work like that. So for me, when I'm managing, you know, for species, I want my cover to equal food. Deer live six feet down. I want my field to be ragweed and asters and goldenrods and and all these other types of things that are, quote unquote, weeds. Those weeds, I got news for you, people. They're well over 20 percent croupers over 20% crude protein and other successful uh, high levels of micronutrients. 
crude protein. Deer need 16% a day for optimum function. You don't need the manicured, you know, chicory food plot or, you know, the, the six blend, you know, clover food plot. Are they great? Yes. Do they provide benefit? Yes. Are you going to waste your time doing them? No. Okay, but that's not the only thing that you need. Just because it looks awesome on social media to put that out there. Okay, yeah, it looks good. It's awesome. Be proud of it, right? You put the hard work in. You did it successfully. Be proud of it for sure. But don't look down on people and don't think that's the only way to do it because I can show you areas that aren't photogenic, that I've got bedding areas all throughout. I've got, you know, I I could show you dozens of species of vegetation that are being you know foraged upon and and we can talk about the micronutrient analysis and things like that so same thing for waterfowl i'm put i want my cover to equal food i'm putting my nesting structure out on water where i know ducks are feeding right so now i've got cover out there they can get away from predation they can fly away i'm looking at the outer edges of my pond and what does that look like so i can keep them in this pond because I'm providing them the things that they need. How do I find food? Well, I gave them food. How do I f- keep myself from becoming food? Well, they're lucky they can fly, right? But I also can give them into you know high grassland management areas, other types of vegetation on the peripheral edges that they can you know duck down. <laughs> no pun intended. You know they can they can they can get down in and, and nest in and things like that because mallards upland nesting species. But also, how do I make a copy of myself? Well, I also provided them nesting habitat which means they're going to breed there right so my cover for waterfowl equals food it equals nesting it equals all the things that they need for success that drives the ecology of that population that's my soapbox i could go forever on that because you know that's why i don't get too involved with like you know showing all the food plotting and stuff that i do because honestly i don't care i don't want to have a discussion about it you know i do it everyone else does it me showing you a clover plot just for me to talk about it. Now now that I have the podcast though, I do need to start doing those things. You know, but for the most part, I, I don't need the I don't need the praise. I don't need, oh, that looks good. Because that's that's two percent of the comments. You're gonna spend most of your time, you know, dealing with the comments of well, how'd you plant it? Why'd you plant it like this? You do this, well, you know, looks a little bit yellow. You got this disease going like what you could go into the weeds. I don't I don't want to deal with that stuff. Yeah, you and know, I, I think the biggest thing that I, I, I take away from all that, and I think a lot of people don't understand, we get so tunnel vision. You know, you why wouldn't you manage for everything? Why, you know, why why wouldn't you want to maximize turkeys, deer, uh, waterfowl, upland game species, yada, yada, yada? Why wouldn't you want to maximize all that? I think we get tunnel vision because we, we like a, a certain species. And uh, it, it I think we get the blinders on in a lot of cases. But in all reality, when you manage things for an ecosystem, it, it, it's exactly that. It's a system that <laughs> works together in a sense. It's, it's the only way I can describe it. And one thing, I, as you're, you're, you're going on about uh, basically uh, food cover, water breeding, things like that, there, there's so many population dynamics in our deer herd that have changed in Pennsylvania over the, the course of gosh, uh, the last few decades. And it's so hard for me to understand why it's different than now. Because I, I didn't live through that, but hearing the stories of high population dynamics and how it's different then compared to now, people complaining and making those those accusations. You said, like, well, the state's not doing their job. It's, it's, I just know the, the basics. I just know that exactly what you just said. Food, cover, water, 
need to breed. They need to have all that structure in order to have successful life and, and reproduce the next. It's uh, Eric, I really appreciate you just having <laughs> this conversation with us, um, yeah. talking about some real specific things. We, we, we need to get you back on here to be kind of yeah, updated sure, and stuff and, and, and uh, maybe talk about a little bit more. But I really like the specifics that you bring to the table and helping us understand a little bit more of this this general sense we love. But, uh, man, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, yeah, appreciate you all your knowledge. No, I mean, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, and, and just kind of one last thing, too. And it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong if if you just, hey, man, I'm a whitetail guy. I love hunting all this other stuff, but, man, I'm just going to manage for whitetails. That's absolutely fine. You know, people get too wrapped up with, well, I'm doing it wrong, or maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know how people are going to judge me on this. Like, this is my view. Who cares? It's your property. You know, it's like if you want to just manage for turkeys, that's fine. If you got a timber stand that you kill a lot of big bucks and a lot of deer out of and it, it's not managed, okay. You can always make something better, you know, but just have a realistic conversation with yourself and just be like, hey, you know, this is my goal. This is what I enjoy doing. Absolutely fine. You know, don't really let anybody else influence the decisions that you want to make for your property. You know, now seek the knowledge, you know, always strive to make things better for the wildlife that that you're trying to, to manage for and, and, you know, as stewards of the land and and people, you know, hoping to continue the hunting heritage that we can pass on for generations. I mean, that's what it's going to take, you know, but at the end of the day, it's your property, man. You got to be happy and, and with the goals that you set and you can always add goals, you know, later on. Love it. Hey, that's a, that's a great thing to end on. So, Hey, keep up the good work and uh, make sure everybody uh, check out the hunting hunt science podcast. Yep, you can find us, uh, you know, we do audio and video recordings, so, you know, each week we put out an episode, you can find the Hunt Science Podcast on all the podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, of course, and then the video portion of the podcast is up on on YouTube. Um, you, social media-wise, you can find us at the Hunt Science Podcast on Am- uh, excuse me, uh, Facebook, Instagram, we've got a TikTok page, Twitter page, you know, pretty much we're on everything. You type in Hunt Science Podcast and you're going to find us, you know, it's, not not many names like that running around there so you'll, you'll find us one way good deal good deal hey thanks again buddy no problem man. thanks mitch